the welcome. My thing's taking a minute to load up. What the? Let's see, is my. There's too much stuff on my pulpit. There we go. All right. We're good now. Right, so before we begin, I want to warn you a little bit about uh, my state of mind today. Uh, last time I was with you, I did some, uh, some yelling. So I'm not going to do that today, but I just want to let you know what my, uh, my state of mind is like today. Uh, this morning, I made myself a cup of coffee, and I put it down next to my computer, and a couple of minutes later, I could not find my cup of coffee. It was gone. So I got up from my office, which if you, know, if you don't know is in that back corner over there. I walked through the entire building. I walked through the fellowship hall, the kitchen, through this building. Couldn't find it anywhere, so dejectedly I went back to my computer, sat back down on my cup of coffee, was right where I left it, next to my computer. This is the type of morning that it has been for me, so you'll excuse just a couple of things that uh, may go wrong, uh, and my microphone is far too hot. Uh, so while I'm talking, I'm just going to, to come down there and fix it because this is the one thing I can't do is test my level of microphone while someone else is up there. So previously, last week, uh, Captain Nicky brought the message. I was at men's camp. It was very fun. Bill missed out. He chickened out and didn't go. But Forrest and I went, and it was a fantastic time. Uh, and so uh, we had men's camp. It was a great time of... Uh, spiritual refreshment for me. I was able to, had the opportunity to work the AV, so I was up the back the entire time looking like I knew what I was doing. I didn't, but I made it look like that. And last week, uh, Captain Nicky brought the message. And so uh, I just want to go over just briefly some of the things that she uh, mentioned uh, last week. So last week she talked about the Antichrist and that here in the book of John, the definition of this word is actually any false teacher or enemies of the truth. So anyone that goes against what Jesus is saying is an antichrist. This is not the same antichrist that is found in the book of Revelation. This is more someone who goes directly against the teachings of Scripture. And so uh, I want to keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through today's message. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of 1 John. We're going to be beginning in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Um, Today's message, there is nothing out of the ordinary of today's message. Uh, there has been a theme running through the entire book of John up to this point, and it's love, 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 love Jesus, obey Jesus, do as Jesus tells you to do. And we're not changing that message drastically, but there are some things in today's passage, which is 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I believe it's on page 1021 of your uh, pew Bibles, if you have one of those, and again, if you don't have one of those, I can't help you, just find it, it's in the back of the New Testament. So we're going to begin here simply by reading 1 John verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know, uh, don't, do not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So, first off, right off the bat, isn't that great that Scripture then says, "We know that now that you believe in Him, you are a child of God." Isn't that great? I'm gauging the reaction this morning. No one said it was great. I, I need a little bit of feedback here. I am needy. Uh, 
here's what's really interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if this is controversial or not, uh, so I'll just say it anyway because whatever, I don't care. Um, have you heard people that say things like, well, we're all God's children? Have you heard that saying before? Well, we're all God's children. Something a little bit uh, that I really want to emphasize, and it comes up in this passage of Scripture, and it is elsewhere in Scripture, not everyone is a child of God. Only those who are in Christ is a child of God. And there's a specific reason why. If you uh, are following along here in, in John, you'll see here in verse 3, oh, that's James, that's not going to be right. Uh, uh, sorry, verse 1 here uh, in chapter 3, it says that the love of the Father has been given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We are God's children now. Now we are God's children. And so I just want to start off the message with this little, just this little point that when the Bible talks about God's children, it's not talking about everyone. Now, I want to preface this by saying every single person was made in the image of God. Every single person has what's called the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. So God created every single person. Uh, I believe that God has a plan and a purpose for every single person. However, we only call them the child of God once they become a Christian. And the reason is, uh, uh, very simply, a legal reason. Um, because we are then children of God, Scripture then tells us that we are co-heirs with Christ to the glory and rewards of Christ. Uh, to be a heir, you need to be a child of. You can't just be a random Johnny on the street that has no relationship. Uh, if I found a flyer that said we're doing a will reading of XYZ today, and I just happen off the street to go into that will reading and say, well, I'm here, give me something, it's, I'm not going to get anything, am I? Because I'm not actually a child, I'm not actually an heir, I'm not going to inherit anything from that person. And so when scripture talks about being a child of God and being co-heirs with Christ, it is actually specifically talking about Christians, not everyone who is in existence. Does that make sense? And I, I, I like to preface that because I understand why people say that. When you hear someone say, well, we're all God's children, the, the thought behind it is not malicious. The thought behind it is, well, I want everyone to know about God. I want everyone to come and understand the love of God. Now, the love of God is for every person. However, here we see very clearly that being a child of God is only once we become a Christian. Amen? So I just wanted to preface that and, and get that out of the way as we continue on here. And so some, something else that's happening in this passage uh, that I just want to talk very briefly about is that there seems to be this friction, and we'll read this as we go through, and this really pops out uh, in the other seven verses or eight verses that we're going to look at, that there is an inbuilt friction to being a child of God and a Christian and not being a child of God and in the world. There is a natural friction or a natural way that we butt heads with those who are not uh, saved. Uh, and, and this is a natural thing, and I want to uh, just, again, mention this at the top of the sermon, that this friction is natural and it's the way it's supposed to be. Um, the expression, have you ever mixed oil and water, and how it doesn't mesh and it doesn't get together and it doesn't gel, um, I had another example, but I can't... This is my cup of coffee. It's gone missing. This is what happens. My brain goes down for the count. 
And so as we move through this passage, I just want you to be aware of two things. One, there are two groups of people. There are those who are the child of God and co-heirs with Christ, and then there, there are those that are not. And that these two groups have a natural friction that if you read Scripture is painfully obvious. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament and you see the children of God and they're trying to do what God tells them to do, there is a group of people always who are going against what God commands them to do. Now, sometimes the children of Israel do their bad thing and they go off and then God has to bring them back through some punishment and consequences for their actions. But uh, when you look at the history of the Bible, it is definitely articulating that there are two types of people who are at friction, those who are with God and those who aren't. The people who are with God are doing what they believe God wants them to do and are following his commandments and his will, and that goes directly against those who aren't with God. And so I want really this to be in your mind as we go through the, the following verses, that there is this friction, there is this conflict that is natural and part of the way that the world is. All right, amen? Amen, here we go. Moving on here to verse 3. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. And so, uh, following on, so we've, we've just established that there is uh, you and I, uh, child, children of God, that God has poured out his love on us and that we are now called his children and that we're called to be uh, in the world, uh, but not of the world. That is from a different scripture, but uh, we, we've got this calling and this separation. And then John says this, that uh, all who have this hope in him that we are uh, to be transformed, uh, purify themselves just as he is pure. Now, the word purify here is the Greek word hagnizo. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but here is a, a pro tip for you. If you ever don't know how to pronounce something, just run over it really fast and everyone thinks you know how to pronounce it. Like, I, I'm not even joking. That's the best way to do stuff. Uh, when, you, when you're reading through scripture and some of those names pop out at you, man, just just read through them fast, run over it, and do it with confidence. Everyone thinks you know what you're saying. So, hagnizo, it comes from the same root word as hagios. Uh, it's, it's from the same area. Now, hagios uh, means saint. So, anytime you're reading through the New Testament and you come across the word saint, it's the word hagios. There, there are different meanings in there, too. So, we've got this word here, purify, which is from the same root word, but we also get words like sanctuary. Uh, here we are preaching in the sanctuary. It is a set-apart place. It is a holy place. The word holy uh, comes from hagios. It means set-apart. Uh, so you've got uh, purify. You've got sanctified. You've got holy. You've got saint. You've got all of these words that mean the same thing. It means set-apart. That's all that holy means. If you were to rock up to a dictionary definition and you wanted to know what the word holy meant, it simply means, in, in its basic, most basic form, the word holy means to be set apart. That's it. Now, this obviously begs the question, set apart from what? Glad you asked. It means to be set apart from the world. But it also means to be set apart to do something. 
And so here's the example. I know I've used it before, but I like to reiterate it uh, so that it, is, it gets stuck in your mind. But when you read through uh, the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy specifically, you get God instructing Moses to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the place where God wanted to come and dwell with his people. It was split up into a couple of different sections. You had a courtyard, the holy place, and then the most holy place. And in that place was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, God's physical manifestation of his presence came down and dwelt on the Ark of the Covenant. What's important about this is every single item in that tabernacle from the bronze laver when you walked in, uh, sorry, the, the bronze altar when you walked in to the bronze laver that the priests washed their hands in into the holy place where there was the candelabra and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Every single one of those things was holy in the sight of God. It was set apart from the world but it was also set apart or consecrated to the service of God. And so you and I, as Christians, as set apart ones, as saints, as holy people, have been set apart from the world, but also set apart to do something. And I can guarantee that to do something is not just to warm the pew on Sunday morning. It's to do something for Christ. And so he says here, purify yourselves as he is pure, and everything who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And we can read, if you remember from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and what us from all unrighteousness. Purify. And so we know from Scripture that it is not you and I through our own actions that purifies us, but rather when we confess our sins, Christ is the one that then purifies us. Amen? Amen. Let's move on. I've got daylight to burn here. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So one, so no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, I'm going to get a, a little bit technical in a little bit here. Um, with a, a, a very simple statement that some of you might find offensive, but I really don't care. There is no excuse for sinning. Okay? Um, some of you... Uh, when, you know, when I was going to, to, to college, you know, we had debates for some reason. Uh, we had debate classes. I still can't figure out why with an AA in ministry we needed debate classes. But for some reason we did. And sometimes we, we brought up moral issues like, well, would you kill one person in order to save a hundred? What would you do in that particular action? That's not the type of stuff that we're talking about. We're not talking about philosophy. We're not talking about high moral and ethical dilemmas. What we're talking about here when we say there is no excuse for sinning is are you lying on a regular basis? Are you stealing? 
uh, if you were to turn to uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 20, uh, and you were to start reading through the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Do you have other gods in your life that you worship or things in your life that is more important than God or learning more about God's nature and character? Are you worshiping things? Uh, when he says, uh, obey the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath holy, uh, is the Sabbath holy to you? Is this the day of rest, not just the day that you come for an hour, do church, and then you go off to Red Robin, and that's whatever, that's the thing that you do. Do you keep the Sabbath? Are you keeping this day as a day that is holy unto God? When you move through that list, and uh, most of you are older, but do you obey your parents? I don't. My mother would tell you. There were times, man. I, uh, like I, I try and tell you, I, I tell you as often as you can so that you know that I'm a real person. Uh, I became a Christian when I was four years old. Uh, I became a real, real Christian, I believe, when I was 17. So I became a Christian in intellect at four, and so I knew everything I was supposed to be doing. I knew, uh, I memorized scriptures, I sang songs about Jesus, I came to church often, I sat in the front row, I could, when my dad would preach, I don't know why this is my brain, but my dad would preach and I'd be sitting there coloring, people would come up to me afterwards, well, your son wasn't paying attention, and I could recite back my dad's sermon uh, because I just remembered it. Uh, so I knew everything that I was supposed to be doing, and yet that gave me license because it was an intellectual thing and not a heart transformation. That just meant that I knew the loopholes that I could run around. Like I could dance around not sinning. Like, well, maybe it's not sinning. Maybe it is. Who's to really tell? Blah, blah, blah. That's what I would do. Now, that's because I was a sinful child. My mother would back that up. I was a sinful child. Um, but what we're talking about here is as an adult and as a follower of Christ who has a brain and a heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Christ, are you sinning? Because what John here is saying is that there is no excuse for it. If you are in Christ, your heart should be transformed and you should not be sinning. He uses the word lawlessness, uh, which is... Uh, activity bereft of God's guidance and in violation of his law. Bereft simply means without. And so the way that he defines lawlessness with this Greek word is simply, are you doing an activity that is different or opposite to God's guidance? And so, he, so, so again, we're not talking about high philosophy. We're not talking about high morals or ethics. We're talking about uh, some of the foundations of basic morality, the Ten Commandments. Are you lying? Are you stealing? Are you respecting your parents? Parents, do you respect your, you know, don't bait your children. It says that in there too. Every time my dad told me to, that I had to obey my parents, I would say, yeah, well, you're not allowed to bait your child, so we're even. Again, I was a sinful child. I don't know what part of this you don't understand. Do we do stuff that's in violation of his law. Now, these things are the obvious things. You know, the Ten Commandments are the obvious ones. Any one of you can say, yeah, man, I don't, I don't commit adultery. I'm not doing that. Uh, the problem is that Jesus then came and redefined adultery. Uh, when you go through the Gospels, people came up to him and says, uh, what's your thoughts on adultery? And, and Jesus sort of redefined it. He said, uh, you have heard it said do not commit adultery, but I tell you the truth, any man that looks lustfully after a woman in his heart has already committed adultery. So he's taken it from this physical action and elevated it to the thought, is your eye lusting after another woman? Jesus did the same thing with murder. 
Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder or thou shalt not kill, but I tell you the truth, any man who calls another man you fool has already killed him in his heart and is condemned to hellfire. I didn't say that, Jesus said that. And so when you look at the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, it's not just a simple matter of saying, well, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't walked up to someone with a gun and shot them. That's, I haven't done that action. But what Jesus does is then redefine it and say it's not about the action, it's about the condition of your heart. It's about the motivation for actions, not just the actions themselves. Because anyone who just blames it on the action themselves or say, well, I haven't done X, therefore I am fine, uh, doesn't have the right understanding of Scripture. It's the condition of the heart. How do you react? How do you interact? How do you talk to people? Now, I've got to tell you the truth. It's taken me a long time to stop calling people idiots in my head. Like, this again, a real moment. I'm a real person. And so uh, when I grew up, I was incredibly arrogant about my own intelligence. And so when someone did something that I didn't think was good, I just thought, man, they're an idiot. Why do I have to talk to them? Like, that was my reaction. And then I flip over when Jesus says, hey, if you called someone's an idiot, it's like you've already killed them. Whoa, Jesus, calm down. Right? Now, I'm not saying that you're going to hell for calling someone an idiot in your head. What I'm saying is that if you are habitually, continually going against the commands of Christ, Scripture says, not me, Scripture says that you are then apart from Christ. I don't know anyone who understands the reality of Scripture and has been transformed by Christ ever wants to say to themselves, man, I go against Christ. To me, that should be scary. Verse 7. See, we're clipping along here. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, he being Jesus. I want to make sure I'm in the right spot here. So I don't want to skip over something that I really want to, to, to land home. Do not let anyone lead you astray. Not all people who declare to be Christians are Christians. Jesus says that there are people who declare to be Christians who are not in Christ. He describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing. And I always thought to myself, that's, you know, I know Jesus, the good shepherd. He's in the middle of the, the bit. He's talking to, to shepherds, so he's using that as an analogy. It's fine. But I always thought it was really weird because I've never actually seen a wolf dress up as a sheep to come into the pen. I've never, I've never seen that. So I always thought that analogy was kind of strange until I became a pastor. And I know then, uh, I know now what I didn't know then, that what he's talking about specifically is we, you and I, are sheep. Uh, my shepherd directly is Christ, but then your shepherd indirectly is me. Your shepherd's also Christ. It might get confusing, but just bear with me here. As a pastor, myself, my wife, Major Linda, we are your shepherds. A wolf in sheep's clothing is someone who walks in here that walks like a sheep, talks like a sheep, but when they decide to make a noise, it is the sound of a wolf. There are people in Christianity, there are mega church pastors who are wolves, who look really fluffy and white and shiny on the outside, but on the inside, they are deadly creatures. 
and not deadly to the body, deadly to the soul. Have you ever not been able to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning and you switched on a televangelist? I have, and I want my brain cells back. Because they were wasted listening to some of the trash that you get on Christian TV and on Christian radio and in Christian bookstores. There is stuff in there that is not Christian. And so what John here is trying to say very, not even subtly, he's, test it. You don't need me as the pastor to test these things for yourself. You hold up a teaching, you hold it up against scripture, and if there is a conflict, you don't listen to the teaching. You listen to scripture. Now, I can get stuff wrong. I, I, uh, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes it happens that, that when I'm reading a scripture, I interpret it one way and it is devoid of a certain fact. So later on, when I get that fact, I have to change the way that I teach. That happens. And I'm not talking about those kinds of mistakes. But if I ever walk up, up here and I step behind the pulpit and I say, if you love Jesus, then that means you're going to be healthy for the rest of your life. You're going to have money for the rest of your life. You're not going to have any conflict for the rest of your life. I'm not teaching the Bible. I am teaching something that is antithetical to the Bible, that goes against the Bible. And it is your responsibility as Christians, your responsibility as Christians, to hold up every standard of teaching against the Bible. And if there is a difference there that is clear, then you need to be the one to say, this is not biblical. It's not just my responsibility. Now, in platform ministry, if any of you get up here and do something that's unbiblical, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be talking to you after the service. Because that is my responsibility, to guard this pulpit from non-Christian teaching, teaching that goes against Scripture. But you need to be mindful of these things. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And here's the big point. Your actions are measurable. The way you act, the way you react is measurable against the standards of Scripture. The way you talk, the way you walk. And the way that we know this is because Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. But their fruit, or by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? He's saying that we will recognize each other by the fruit that we bear. If I love you, you can tell that I love you. But if I say that I love you and I constantly am slapping you, you know that I don't love you. Right? Amen? Or do I have to start slapping a couple people? I'll make my point. I can do physical demonstrations. I'm not above it. We'll recognize each other by our fruit. If someone says to you in this congregation, oh yeah, I'll love you and I'll pray for you, and then five minutes later they're sitting next to someone gossiping about that person, that's not love. That is something that you can observe from the outside. Now, some of you get caught up in the whole scripture, and we talk actually about this Bible studies. Uh, Mondays at 6.30, you're all welcome, just let me know. Fantastic time, little plug. Uh, but we, we talk about this often at Bible studies, that a lot of people hear the words of Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged, and they say, well, it's not my responsibility to judge anyone. I'm just going to sit back here in my corner and not really upset anyone or do anything. But what we talk about is that there's actually more to that scripture. 
It's judge not lest ye be judged, for in the same manner that you judge, so too you shall be judged. And then Paul, later on in the New Testament, says, you have heard it said, judge not lest ye be judged. And I tell you the truth, you've got absolutely no cause to judge those outside of the church, but for those inside of the church, you would hold them accountable. And that accountability is not being judgmental, it is not being harsh, it is seeing the actions of someone who claims to be Christian that is against the teachings of Scripture and saying there is a disconnect, what is it about? And that is how you guard yourself, again, against false false teachings, about being led astray. That is how you guard yourself and your heart and those that are around you. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer, of course, is no, they don't. If you ever go to an apple tree and you pick a pear, you didn't go to an apple tree. You went to a pear tree. That may seem simple, but come on, guys. And, and here's something else that pops up in this particular scripture. Jesus and sins are polar opposites. Jesus and sin are polar opposites. And just because I can, the definition of polar, directly opposite in character and tendency. The, character, the characteristics of sin is death and destruction and imprisonment. That's what sin is. Jesus is life, love, and freedom. They're opposite ideas. They don't mix. There's nothing in Scripture, nothing in Scripture in where I have been enslaved by following it. Now, a lot of people have this opinion of Christianity. They say, well, you guys don't do X, Y, Z behavior, therefore I have more freedom than you. And I don't believe that to be the case. Because I don't believe there is freedom in things that can destroy you. I, I don't believe that. Now, some of you, let's be honest, most of you are from America. Most of you like are star-spangled awesome and you fly eagles in your backyard and you have a, a, like a copyright on the word freedom. I understand this about Americans. The word freedom to them is very big. And a lot of Americans will say, we have freedom in this country. Yet there are things in this country that you are allowed to do and you're not allowed to do. True or false? Uh, if you walk down the street naked next to a cop, the cop is just going to let you go. <laughs> True or False. False. So even in this country where we champion freedom, and God bless America, I, I actually love this country. Uh, another note, I put in my citizenship paperwork this last week. Ooh, for me. Um, thank you very much. I'm here to stay, uh, hopefully. Um, even within the, conf like, even in freedom, there are still things that you are not allowed to do. Even in this country that champions freedom, there is stuff that you're not allowed to do. If you grab a gun, you load that gun, you walk up to the back of a person and you shoot them in the head, you are going to jail, true or false? True. So, so when someone comes up to you and says, man, there are con Christianity is about confines, you're not allowed to do X, Y, Z, therefore you're not allowed, you're not in freedom, that's actually a, a, a straw man argument. It's not a factual argument. There are things in Scripture that are forbidden to do because they lead to destruction. If something is sinful in Scripture, I guarantee you, if you took that sin to its extreme, it will end in death and destruction. And so, sin is direct opposite uh, in character or tendency to Christ. 
Christ came to give us freedom. He said he came to give us life and life in its fullest. He came so that we could uh, live in him and be free in him and love in him and that you and I have the ability to be free in him. Where am I going? Verse 9. Only two more verses to go. So we're, we're getting close here. No one who is born of God's will will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Again, I might make you mad here. I don't care. I care, but I don't care. I want you to read scripture with me because then you know it's not me saying this, it's scripture that's saying this. And some people might have different definitions and that's fine. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Which means if you continue sinning habitually, continually, unrepentedly, it means that you're not a Christian. It means that you know something in your head, but it has not transformed your heart. And that is dangerous because no one gets into heaven on head knowledge. People get into heaven through their love and heart transformation, through their love of Christ, not through the amount of Bible verses that they've memorized, not through the fact that they can recite the books of the Bible from start to finish, not because they know when to raise their hands in the church service, when to say amen, how much to put in the offering plate, know which choruses that we clap on. That doesn't get you into heaven. Only a transformed heart gets you into heaven. And today's society, we live in a world that tells you that we don't talk about sin, we don't talk about repentance, we don't talk about transformation. Just anyone who comes in, you just come in, and that is wrong according to the scripture. You can come in as a sinner, but your heart needs to be transformed. Without that transformation, scripture says, I don't say, scripture says, without that transformation, you are not in Christ. And too many people are going to hell because the good intentions of the church of not judging people or not holding people accountable uh, hasn't corrected their, uh, their actions. And so they have a head knowledge of Christ and not a heart transformation. And that should horrify us. The book of Ezekiel says, uh, God comes to Ezekiel, his watchman, and says, if I give you a message to proclaim and you don't proclaim it, the person who dies, their blood is on your hands. But if you proclaim the message and they don't change their actions, then their blood is on their hands. You and I have been given a holy responsibility in Scripture to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to transform hearts, not simply to inform minds. Now, for a lot of people, they're intellectual and you need to inform the mind. So I'm not saying that that in itself is sinful. Getting information out there telling people about your faith, all of that that is an intellectual thing is still good, but when you depend only on that and there is no heart transformation, then it can lead to people going to hell. And we don't want that. We don't, scripture says that the desire of God's heart is that no man should suffer hell. That's what scripture says. And if that's the desire of God's heart, it should be the desire of ours. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Again, it's black and white. It's in opposition to each other. It's one team versus another team. How many of you watch the Seahawks game? One team versus another team. 
and when they were in direct competition, they hit, often and quite entertainingly. At no point did those two teams on the field sit down, have a powwow, figure it out, and say, you know what, we're both winners, let's just walk away from this. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Again, this isn't me saying it. This is scripture. Anyone who does not do right is not God's child. It is literally up there in black and white. Literally black and white. Anyone who does not do what God says is not God's child. But this is... This is where I want to end on. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Again, John brings it back to love. Now, back in my more angry days, I thought any mention of love in the Bible was just hippie nonsense. Being honest with you, I thought love was overplayed until I started studying it closely. Here the word that is used is agape. This type of love is literally the sacrificial love. This is the love not, oh yeah, I love pizza. No, no. It's not the I love the Seahawks. I love the Seahawks, but not with agape love. I love the, sea, I love the Seahawks with a different type of love. A friendly love. A brotherly love. This type of love is sacrificial. And so here, he literally says, you are not a Christian if you do not have sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters. You do not have love if you look at your brothers and sisters in suffering and do nothing. You are not a Christian if you look at your brothers and sisters who need help and do nothing. You are not a Christian if you ignore the suffering of those that God has placed around you. And so as we end our time to, uh, together today, I just want to emphasize this point, and I will always emphasize this point over and over and over again. You as Christians are a part of the family of God. And part of your responsibilities in Scripture is to care for your other brothers and sisters, to love them sacrificially, to love them and, and be the hands and feet of Jesus. To treat each one of us as though that person was Christ himself. If Christ walked into here and said, man, I'm thirsty. How many of us would run over the others in order to get him a bottle of water? Or a cup of water? Like, if Jesus walked in here, like I'd trample you guys in order to serve Jesus. Like, maybe, maybe I'm less Christian than you guys. You're like, no, we would do things in an orderly and lovely way. Great. While you're doing that, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to beat you to serving Jesus because that's my goal. We should live our lives as though the person sitting next to you is Christ. Loving them, serving them, honoring them. Because that's what Scripture tells us to do. Amen? Let's pray.